Hello and welcome to another episode of Possibility Podcast. My name is Sarah Knight. I originally began this podcast as a way of supporting my own journey and that of others who might listen in finding pathways of possibility for transformation in this world of increasing climate and environmental degradation. Uh, But it seems of late that for me, possibility has included not recording podcast episodes with any degree of regularity. The urge is upon me now, sparked by a story and a recent telling of it and the need to tell it again, Uh, which may be more and more uh, what I use this podcast for. And will anyone listen? Who knows? Uh, But it is possible that they might. So if you are listening, then I do get to call you dear listener and say thank you, dear listener, for joining me here. This episode will be a journey into the territory of Samhain, or for us in North America and in other parts of the world, uh, Halloween. However, there is so much more to this time of year than watching carved pumpkins slowly rot on your front porch or throwing tiny Mars bars into pillowcases. Um, And I begin with uh, a recording that I'm going to include um, that I think is pretty interesting about the origins and meaning of Samhain and some of those uh, traditions that have made their way into our Halloween. I recorded this last year at this time, almost to the day, for uh, an event I host uh, regularly, uh, New Moon Storytime and Yoga Nidra Sessions. Um, I was going to re-record it uh, just so that this episode sounded very professional and like it had all been recorded at the same time, but then the possibility popped into my head that I didn't have to do that, so I didn't. Uh, And the second part of this podcast is a story, uh, a story of the Celtic mythological hero Finn McCool, uh, recorded today, and some of my own interpretations of this story that I hope you will find illuminating. So dear listener, uh, sit back and uh, enjoy. Welcome. (laughs) So in the... um, Celtic tradition, or Irish Celtic tradition, anyway, that part of the world. There are uh, four seasonal festivals, of which Samhain is one. Uh, Samhain, generally celebrated on the 31st of October, is a threshold festival. And for them, it marked not only the end of the year and the beginning of a new year, it was the movement into the dark half of the year. Um, And, you know, like Christianity um, did with lots of other aspects uh, around pagan traditions, because they were so powerfully held and so widely celebrated for such a long period of time. So a lot of Christian festivals were kind of heaven, barren, awful likeness to pagan ones <laughs> and happened to be happened to to occur around the same time of year so that Samhain became Halloween is because All Saints Day was set for the 1st of November and in, in Christianity All Saints Day was the day to celebrate uh, 
saints and other people of uh, notability in in that tradition. Um, and uh, All Saints Day, All Hallows Day, where hallow, I actually had to look up the, the definition of the word hallow. Hallow means to make holy. So there we have Halloween. So Samhain, you know, it, it's, it's like the Celts didn't write anything down. It was an oral tradition. Um, so how exactly it, it emerged is um, not necessarily 100% uh, provable. Um, and it's interesting that in spite of that, it's, it has reached around, around the world. And, you know, this festival was celebrated at a time when time was not linear. Everything was circular in, in old time. And, and this time moving into the dark time was just a part of the essential part of moving into the light time, which was a part of moving into the dark time, this cycle of, of, of death and, and, and rebirth. You know, and it's only more, more recently that, that time went from being something like an oscillating wave or a circular motion into something that moves in a straight line, that marches. And we've really lost something there. We've put death at the the end of things, and it was in a in a podcast with Michael Mead, who I think was quoting um, an Irish person or an Irish tradition, anyway. But it, it struck me, and, and some of you will have already heard me referencing this. But I've been thinking about it so much since he said it. He said, "Death doesn't come at the end of things; it comes in the middle of everything." as every single moment rises from the ashes of the corpse of the one that just passed. I, I love that thought. Um, and, you know, it was at, at this time of year, moving into the, the, the dark time, that whatever the, the peoples had been doing at that time had to be completed. All of the outdoor tasks had to be complete. And if they weren't completed, they had to be dropped. They had to be just dropped as, as the, the necessity of the darkness, the changing of the season, the cold required people move indoors because the, the land was, was returning underground. The land was moving into the womb of the earth. People had to move into the into the womb of the dark, and this wasn't seen as a as a loss. It was seen as an opportunity to move into this into this time that allowed for a very uh, gentle unfolding towards the the much more rapid and upward rising movement of of how life would resume in the springtime, and. One of the, the ancient customs of the time, which is, I think, links into still some of the customs around Halloween, which often include bonfires, is that this, this might be the time where people would let the, har the fire in the hearth, which was kept going all year round, they would let the fire in the hearth go completely out. They would gather in their community and the fire would be re-sparked from, from, from their, their flinting wheel. Um, and the flame would become a fire, would become a bonfire. And each of the families would take a flaming log back to their homes and relight their hearth with the flame from the communal fire. And so symbolic of this, this 
pause between dark and light. This thinning of the veils, this liminal space, you know, this, the hearth goes out, the fire in the hearth goes out and there's a moment right before it's relit, this threshold time. And, and also an honoring of how they were holding, um, uh, holding for the return of the light, prepared, celebrating, waiting for, including, knowing that the return of the light, the light would come. Um, so this, this moving into the, into the dark half of the year was, was celebrated at, at Samhain. And as I just kind of indicated there, this, this sort of threshold time, you know, that is really this, they, they, you know, you have heard this. I won't be the first person you've heard this from. You've probably heard it at least a hundred or a thousand times, this thinning of the veils time, you know, where the veils between worlds are the, are the thinnest. And this, um, liminal space that exists at Samhain time, where liminal means that it's kind of this ambiguous zone this threshold zone between the ending of something and the starting of the next thing. So that, that this time that is exists no longer by the rules of the, the period that has just ended, nor has it entered into the rules of the period that is yet to come. So it's this liminal space where there, there aren't really clear rules. Um, and you know what's interesting just on the, on the subject of time when I... I, I something flashed to, I was in the car earlier and something flashed to me and I did a quick Google and a bunch of things linked up. So I'm just going to share this because I think it's really interesting that in a lot of theological kind of uh, traditions, time emerged in the creation story when light became separate from dark. And, and time served to function this circular motion, the movement between light and dark, between full moon and new moon, between breath, the circular motion of the breath, you know? Time was always this, this thing that moved like this, um, but only began in this way when there was a separation, you know, a difference between two phases when, when this duet, dual kind of existence emerged. And I think this is presented really interestingly in the Greek um, mythology, actually. In the Greek creation, most creation stories are a little bit violent. <laughs> in the Greek creation story, uh, Mother Gaia uh, appeared first, the goddess Gaia. Sorry, goddess Gaia appeared first. Um, and Eros, which is basically lust, sensuality, desire. Eros created desire in Gaia, and Gaia actually created Uranus, which is the god of the sky. So, I mean, but this happens in Greek mythology. Technically, Uranus uh, was her son. But anyway, that's, you know, just what happens. They made it. <laughs> and so earth and sky came together, the first lovers, and they loved and they loved and they created bait and they loved and they loved and they loved and they loved. And I think Guy probably got a little bit fed up in, in the end, you know, she was ready. She needed a little bit of room in there. But anyway, Uranus wasn't going anywhere. And all these, all these babies were being created inside of her, but they were trapped in her womb. They couldn't escape because he was, he filled her constantly. And so in the, in the end, what happened, Gaia plotted with one of her sons, Kronos, the god of time, to dismember his father from the inside. And so hacked 
Uranos out, freed up space for all of the children in her womb to escape. And this space was created, Scott retreated upwards and Gaia stayed down here. So the light and the dark were separated and the space between became the world that, that that, that we occupy, that we get to occupy. But it was Kronos, and there were many other children in there. It was Kronos, the god of time, that created this separation. Um, so yeah, I just found that when that I, that I made that realization in my head today, I wanted to share that with you. So in this, in this Samhain time, where we enter this kind of liminal space, there's an opportunity for, for time itself to cease to be, to obey these really strict laws where past is back there and future is up there. And so a lot of divination is associated with Samhain time. It's a time for, for, for seeing into the future, for getting messages from the future, for connecting, of course, with your ancestors of the, of the past. Um, and this time between worlds is a time when other thresholds can be crossed, of course. And the main threshold that is celebrated at this time is the threshold between the living and the dead. And in many traditions around the world, this wouldn't necessarily have been completely embraced. And the people might have done everything they could to keep, you know, the ancestors, the, the dead, where they were supposed to be and the living where they were supposed to be. But the, the Celts felt differently about it. They would leave their windows and their doors open at Samhain to welcome their ancestors in. They would include them in their feasts. They would leave food out for them. And what is um, really interesting is that um, they would, in some, some uh, places, some customs, there would be a little bit like in family constellations, how, how different people are chosen to represent different ancestors. There would be representatives from the community that would uh, choose or, or be chosen, I'm not sure which, to represent, uh, represent ancestors, represent, represent the ancestors of the community. And they would go from door to door this wandering group of ancestors. And they would agree to, to represent the dead and imbibe on behalf of the on behalf of the dead, of the departed ones, of the of the families that they would be visiting. And so hence this association with dressing up as ghouls and skeletons and zombies and whatever else and going door to door and receiving food at each different household they would there's this um tradition you might have heard of soul cakes soul cakes are often baked at halloween so soul cakes would what would be would be served to this wandering group of of the representatives of the dead as they went as they went door to door now not all beings from the other worlds were necessarily embraced and the Celts would uh, go to certain measures to make sure that the other you know the fairy kingdom for example this was a time where that where that threshold could be crossed as well. So it was not a time to go walking in, in amongst um, fairy rings, for example, or near fairy forts. Uh, and there are other trickster kind of characters. The puka is one of them in Ireland. So the puka uh, might come and steal you away if you were found walking alone on, on Samhain Eve down a, down a dark road. Um, and interestingly, actually, on the, the subject of tricksters, the trick or treat part um, comes in here too, the trick part of the trick or treat part. 
This, because it was this threshold time and normal rules didn't apply, it was often a time too where there would be certain, a lot of um, room made for the normal rules of the society to be kind of breached in other ways. So tricks were, they played tricks on each other. And one of them, I think, I just, I was listening to some podcasts today and I heard reference to, in Ireland, it's so funny, they, they carve turnips there. I think carving a pumpkin is hard to carving a turnip. Anyway turnip carving that's what they because they didn't have pumpkins right I mean pumpkins take heat to grow in the summertime they had turnips so one of the tricks that were played I guess was the the smashing up of turnips in the in the field which of course correlates here right the pumpkin smashing and the and the pumpkin carving um, and it would be a time too where young people would often play tricks on their elders the only time where they would get away with showing such kind of dishonor and disrespect to that normal kind of code of of conduct I brought up in the in in the email I sent around that I was going to be uh, also just mentioning this term beyond the pale um, and its and its origins and and why I why I bring it in now. So beyond the pale, you might have heard that term before. It usually kind of it usually is used in a derogatory kind of way. You know, someone that that goes beyond the pale or conducts in a, in a way that is beyond the pale. It usually refers to some sort of uh, savage behavior, somebody that's gone against some sort of moral code or or done something that is disagreeable or dishonorable or whatever. And it goes back many centuries. Um, when I was doing my my research, perhaps back to the fourteenth century. And it originates when the English were, were busy trying to deal with the savages of Ireland. And so there was a region of Ireland that was, that was properly English at that time that the English had claimed. And to mark the boundary of that, of that zone, they wooden stakes were, were, were hammered into the ground and a, and a fence was built. And these wooden stakes were called pales, P-A-L-E. And beyond the pale was the region of the savage, the unruly. It was outside of the of the normal laws of of an of an upright upheld society that you know the certain moral code of conduct and i've heard beyond the pale used in a, in in um also to refer to the crossing of certain thresholds in in spirituality too but i think that this beyond the paleness has at least we're becoming more aware of it, you know, but it has permeated in so many ways throughout our, our society. And to evolve, we in a way need to keep on going back and re-embrace what was, what was pushed out to the other side of that fence line, what was deemed as, as unacceptable, as savage, um, as immoral. And so this evening, we're really going to, um, hopefully, avail of the opportunity that always exists around new moon time, this pause, right? Between the, the waning and the waxing. I think that's the right side, isn't it? The waning coming in, or the waxing and the waning. I think it's the waning and the waxing, anyway. Did I think, did I write this down here? Anyway, the waning and the waxing. Um, this pause, this moment, when the moon is doing neither, this liminal space, this threshold time, and this opportunity that, that this Samhain time offers too, this, this threshold time. 
and what we do in yoga nidra of course is we is we really seek to elongate this threshold time that we normally go through so quickly when we fall asleep i don't know how many of you have that experience you know as you're maybe drifting into sleep or coming out of sleep and and in that moment sometimes i solve some major crisis in the world or in my own life and think oh that's it i've got it and i will remember that for sure and then full consciousness it's completely gone <laughs> and so yoga nidra is about kind of riding that state with a certain amount of consciousness working to be the the to also be in that state and be the witness of that state so that we can return with the bounty and bring it back through bring it bring it from beyond the pale from the depths of our of our normally kind of unconscious where there's so much gold down there bring it back through bring it bring it bring it into the into the light of our consciousness so there you go that was a little bit on Samhain I find it totally fascinating how so many of our um, systems today are rooted in much older traditions of past um, so now uh, on to the story the story that I'm going to tell is a story uh, featuring Finn McCool, uh, quite a famous figure in Irish folklore. And this story came to me through the podcast of a storyteller named Daniel Allison, who I am delighted to say is soon to be a teacher of mine as I embark on a year-long storytelling course with him. He operates a fantastic podcast and is from this podcast that I learned of Finn McCool's uh, journey to meet the fire-breathing uh, chi or fairy uh, creature on the, the hill of Tara. And like all myths, there are elements that are common to most tellers and elements that are unique to each of them. And although some parts of this telling are, are my own, or rather my own as told through the story as told by many others, some parts of this telling are very much Daniel's. And in particular, his description of the fire-breathing she, uh, the goblin-like fairy man. Uh, they were just so wonderful. I uh, retell them here very much through the lens of his telling. And if you enjoy this story as I tell it, I would encourage you to find your way to his words directly and uh, so many other wonderful stories on his House of Legends podcast. So in this story, uh, Finn's fate made him an outcast before he was even born. And this is his hero's journey. And although this story presents his journey as an outward one in the world, symbolically this represents a journey uh, made through one's own interior, through the dark inner places where we must meet our greatest fears and sorrows, courageously face our own inner ghouls uh, to break free of the limitations imposed by what we hold and how we hold it deep inside our own selves. And now, the story. Finn McCool rounded a corner and stopped. There up ahead of him was the hill of Tara and the castle of the High King. He took in the sight and inhaled deeply. Finn had waited his whole life 
for this day, the day that he would find his way to Tara to claim his rightful place as a leader of the Fianna. As a forbidden child, his mother had secreted him away to the depths of the forest to be raised by a pair of medicine women, lest he should meet the same fate as his father, death. His father, the powerful Kul, had had the misfortune of falling in love with a woman who would be forbidden to him, and in their refusal to accept the sentence of not being together, they had run away and fathered a child, this very Finn. Kul, as leader of the Fianna, must have thought he could either escape punishment or defeat any punishing hand that came to deal him a blow, but alas, such was not the case. And when the warrior Gaul was sent to challenge Kul, Finn's father had lost his life, and Gaul had taken the title as leader of the legendary band of warriors known as the Fianna. Finn grimaced at the thought of Gaul, but allowed for a smirk to form the edges of his mouth as he imagined Gaul's disfigured one-eyed face. His father Kul had claimed one of Gaul's eyes at least, for he lost his life. And now, many years after his secondment to the forest, with many trials under his belt and much wisdom under his hood, it was time. Tonight, the eve of Samhain, the night that one year leaves and the next arrives, tonight Finn would return to Tara to stand in front of the High King and his people, and to retake his place as leader of the Fianna. Finn began walking again, a boy in stature but a man in stride. In the absence of a father, he'd had to learn how to be a man all by himself, and his once feigned confidence had become a fairly steadfast feeling. As Finn strode towards the hill of Tara, he saw the whole hill alight with dozens of small blazes, the fires from the camps of all of the people of any significance in this kingdom who had gathered to welcome in the new year with the High King. Dusk was coming, and he could hear the banter of the masses as they weaved in haphazard lines through the encampment towards the castle on the hill. It was nearing the hour of the feast, and it was time for these people to gather in the hall and take their places with the king. Finn took up the rear, as was his design, and approached the castle gates. The guards could see that this young man carried himself with nobility, and they let him pass without question. When all had entered the hall, Finn paused for a moment, steadying himself, taking a brief suck on his thumb. How ironic that the flesh of the Salmon of Wisdom had first made contact with Finn's thumb, imparting him with all of the wisdom of all of the elders— but requiring him to mimic a baby to access this wisdom he now carried in his body. He released his thumb, took a deep breath, and pushed the huge wooden doors to the festival hall open, striding through the crowd now seated at long wooden tables towards the head of the hall where the High King sat. As he approached, he spotted that one-eyed Gaul, his father's murderer, as he nudged the king beside him to bring his attention to the young man who approached. Finn stopped a few paces from where the king sat, holding his gaze. 
and spoke. Finn is Anamdam. Finn Makkul. Finn is my name. Son of Kul. Finn could see the king's eyes widen ever so slightly, although not with fear. Finn, son of Kul. Well, the king paused. Falcherot, you are welcome. With that, Finn was handed a cup of mead and a place beside the king was cleared for him to take his seat. Soon platters overflowing with food and jugs overflowing with mead were filling the dining hall. Finn was treated generously, and although he felt the eyes of Gaul upon him, he was unmoved. Finn did not know how all this was to unfold, but he knew Gaul would yield. Finn's place as the rightful heir to the title of the leader of the Fianna would be his. He had made this journey, and it was time. Finn noticed that, although he held some of the attention of many of the others in the hall who cast curious glances his way, for the most part everyone seemed distracted. There was a magnificent feast, and these people sat in the company of the High King on Samhain Eve at that, and although they ate and drank and laughed, they were all edgy, jittery eating too quickly, drinking too much, laughing too loud. Children hid under tables and babies cried in their mother's arms. As the feast neared its end, the clash of cups and plates silenced and conversation grew quiet. Finn took his chance to address the king. I have a question, if you don't mind. Go ahead, of course. On this eve of all eves, at this feast of all feasts, why does the cheer of this celebration feel so laden with fear? The king sighed. Ah, Finn, you have a keen sense, of course. Well, the truth is, for twenty-three years now, we have been cursed by the she, the fairies. And once a year, on Samhain Eve, the fierce she-man Alin comes to the hall, and chances all with the music of his harp so that we quickly fall into a deep slumber. He then sets this hall on fire, and we wake only when the flames are licking at our boots. Most of us manage to escape, but some do not, and each year we lose some of our beloved friends and warriors to the flames set alight by this beast. The king paused. Why do we keep it up? Well, as you know, son of Cool, the people of Ireland are no cowards, and we will ne'er be chased away by some goblin. The king had stopped speaking, and the hall had fallen silent, all gazes upon him and this young man beside him. He nodded his head a few times before speaking again. And so, I now declare that any person that can free us from the clutches of this very curse will be granted his rightful inheritance, no matter how big a reward that may be. Finn rose. 
I will deliver you from this cruel fate. The fairy will not set the hall ablaze on this night. Commotion broke out in the hall. Some were angry, some were bemused that this boy could make such an audacious claim. But there were a few who knew better, a few that saw this son of cool for who he really was. A warrior named Fika, who had once served his father, approached Finn, holding a spear. Finn, son of cool, I will help you defeat this fairy. Take this spear. At the first sound of the she's harp, touch the tip of the spear to your forehead. It will keep you out of his enchantment. And then, when the time is right, strike it through him. Cast him dead. Finn thanked the warrior, bowed to the king, and made his way out of the hall, down the hill, and towards the edge of the woods surrounding the township of Tara. He sat down, leaned against the trunk of a great oak, and waited. The night was now fully dark and the sky full of stars. Finn guessed that the ferryman would soon be approaching. And sure enough, a few moments later, Finn heard the sound of a harp being struck. The most beautiful sound he had ever heard. He quickly lifted the tip of the spear towards his forehead, but oh, that sound. And as the tip of the spear made its transit through space, Finn fell asleep. The shortest sleep of his life, the tip of the spear made contact and Finn bolted awake, rose to his feet and spied the ferryman skipping his way towards the hill, harp in hand. Finn followed. The ferryman did not see him. As the ferryman approached the high wooden doors of the feasting hall, he lifted his harp and began to play a different tune. Finn, now free of its enchantment, could hear its splendorous beauty. And he could also hear that the people inside the hall were falling silent, as surely those struck notes made their way through the cracks in the door and did their work, sending the people into a deep sleep. All the while, the ferryman skipped from one foot to another, chortling a dirty little laugh. When the hall was completely silent, the ferryman slung his harp over his shoulder and began to take an almighty huge breath in. He inhaled and inhaled, filled until his eyes bulged and smoke poured from his ears. Then he got down on all fours, opened his mouth, and let out an immense flame-filled belch. Finn leapt between the fairy's flames and the doors of the hall, holding his shield aloft. The flames met shield, not wooden door, and were quickly lost to the cool air. The ferryman howled, took in another huge breath, let out another huge flame-filled belch, and again they were no match for the shield of Finn. 
Over and over the she belched his flames, but to no end other than to finally exhaust himself of fuel. The ferryman finally had no flames left. Finn lowered his shield, looked into the ferryman's eyes, and clenched his hand tightly around the spear. The ferryman turned and ran. Finn followed. The ferryman ran through town, through forest, across fields and over mountains. As fast as the ferryman ran, so could Finn. They ran and they ran, the chased and the chaser. Across the lands of Ireland, and just when Finn was beginning to lose his breath, he heard the ferryman howl and saw a chink of light peer in a hillside ahead. A doorway with a figure in it, gesturing frantically to the ferryman to run. He was nearly home. Finn heard him let out a whoop and knew that this was his last chance. He must strike the ferryman before he crossed that threshold into the unreachable. Finn stopped, raised the spear, took aim, and let it fly. The spear took flight and found purchase right through the back of the heart of the ferryman. He dropped down, dead. Back at Tara, dawn soon began to approach, and the people were awoken on this day with a different kind of blaze, the fiery light of the coming dawn. Slowly they stirred, raising their slumped bodies out of chairs and off of floors, looking about themselves in disbelief, smiling, hugging. They were relieved. They were released. The king gathered and led a party out of the hall to seek the source of their deliverance. And sure enough, there they found Finn, leaning against the gate, with the ferryman's head stuck high up on a post beside him. The king spoke. Finn, thank you. The people of Tara now grant you your inheritance. All knew he must accede. He knelt before Finn, the gesture and act of acknowledgement of this new leader. Finn, son of Kul, claiming his place and his right to fulfill his own destiny as leader of the Fianna. And somewhere, on a bleak and desolate hillside, a mother sits and wails over the headless body of her son. And there we have it, uh, the story of Finn McCool and the fire-breathing fairy Aline uh, on the hill of Tara. I hope you enjoyed that story. What follows now uh, are some of my interpretations of the symbolic elements of this story. Our dreams, our dream world, uh, the symbols chosen by our dreams, 
um, are really chosen by our unconscious. As our unconscious uses symbols to uh, communicate to our conscious mind, our unconscious doesn't speak to us directly in words in some sort of a logical way. Else our unconscious speaks to us in a very right-brained kind of fashion through the language of symbols. And myths have a similar language or rather way of communicating uh, through symbols. And myths can speak to um, other realms of our consciousness, more unconscious aspects of ourselves. And they can awaken deep knowing from within. Myths can provoke. Um, they can offer a chance for insights and illuminations to rise up from the depths of us from parts of us that we may not have ordinary world conscious access to. And uh, yeah, so there's many symbolic elements of this story, and in particular why I chose it for this uh, podcast uh, on, on Samhain. Uh, well, of course, because this story is set on, on Samhain Eve. And the choice of Samhain, uh, where Samhain is, as I spoke to it earlier in this podcast, it's the thin veil time, the thinnest veil time of the year, perhaps. And um, what this represents is really how on our own inner journeys, we must uh, consciously choose, ideally consciously choose, or um, crossing these thresholds will be chosen for us. Life will force us into circumstances where our external environment is no longer available to us and or tolerable to us. Uh, we may, a relationship may end, uh, we may be fired from a job, we may enter a period of, of unwellness, or perhaps none of those things happen. We make a very conscious choice to face some of these um, inner shadow parts of ourselves. And so the choice of Samhain for Finn really represents his, his conscious choice to cross uh, a threshold and to face some of this, uh, these shadow parts of himself that are, that are holding him back from his rightful place in the world. And we must do the same, crossing these thresholds um, of our ordinary reality to, to access what lays outside of what feels so fixed and rigid in our everyday set of beliefs, what we've accepted to be true about the world, about ourselves, about our place in it, and ultimately what has come to limit us or, you know, we wouldn't be on the journey. And uh, the ferryman in this story, uh, the she, represents the buried, rejected, denied uh, aspects of ourselves um, that lay buried in the shadows of our unconscious. And it is, it is these parts that we are choosing to uh, engage with when we cross that threshold, or not necessarily choosing, but being forced to, as I said, through life circumstances. And um, really, if we had before then uh, any perception of them, we probably would deem them monstrous, uh, ill-deserving of a place in our waking lives. Uh, they seem to lurk, waiting to sabotage. And uh, previously, we may have been completely unconscious or, or unaware of these parts, even though we might have been so aware of the sabotaging effects of them on our lives. Uh, and these parts of ourselves are, yeah, what we're asked to face when we journey inside to do our, our shadow work. 
And, you know, I, I, this part at the end of the story, this is very much from Daniel Allison's uh, telling of the story and a very, very powerful, spoke very powerfully to me. And I, I left it in as it really speaks to a premise very common in, in an area of work I do called family constellations. And what we see at the end of this story, um, when the, the ferryman's mother, uh, cries over over his body is that this this part uh this fairy man or this part of us you know it 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 was running home it was nearly there its mother was standing in the doorway uh beckoning and these parts of ourselves are actually born from a deep place inside of us that is really trying to be good to the people that we come from you know what does the mother represent to all, all of us and to life itself, birthplace of the child, the eternal hearth that is always lit for us, the source of life. Um, and as a child, we really belong to that place. And there is a part of us that will do anything to belong there forever, especially if our needs were not fully met. And uh, so for many of us, uh, these, what I will now say, adaptive parts of us, rather than sabotaging parts of us, because they were originally adaptations. They didn't set out to, to sabotage. These adaptive parts um, developed adaptive capacities to please, to perform um, whatever was required at an unconscious attempt to be deserving of, of love, of home and of hearth, to be very good boys and girls, to stay loyal to the people that we come from, to make up for all of the consequences for mom and dad and bringing us into this world. And in this particular story, we see that uh, Finn must have understood that there were very big consequences for his, his father and his mother. And uh, for Finn, uh, in this story, that means claiming his right to be his whole self, as it does for most of us. Um, not only mother, where he had um, chosen to feel a very high degree of belonging, um, but also with father. And the symbolism in the story of his father's slayer ending up with only one eye is also very potent. That the, the rejected um, half of ourselves or the rejecting of half of ourselves results in cutting ourselves off from half of our own ability to see and to be with the world. We, if we are cut off, from either mother as a as a source or father as a source, only half of us is available. Um, and so in this story, you know, the the all other parts of him go to deep sleep, right? The whole, everything else in the kingdom falls into a deep, deep slumber, as Finn would have until then. But now, with the blessing of his father, in this story, I believe, represented by both the king who um, decrees this this uh, this challenge of sorts that he know he must know Finn, of course, will rise to and probably win, and the warrior uh, who also gives Finn the spear. Uh, these two represent the the blessing of Finn's father. 
um, and, and that blessing to undertake this, this quest, that he does deserve a place, that he gets to have a place. And in that way, he finally uh, is ready to become conscious to this um, part of himself that is his father too. And he can feel the permission needed to undertake this great quest. But, you know, what this will mean is that ultimately he will have to leave the bosom of his mother, um, as we all have to do. And as a man or, or woman or, or person, human, um, we will always be connected to her. But there comes a point in our own uh, evolution where we can no longer belong to her, where we must leave home. And there is grief there for certain um, but when we leave this innocent place, we really must come to terms then with all that we did not receive there. And for many of us that stay in this place in all of the ways that we do by actually sabotaging, unconsciously sabotaging forward progress that would kind of take us forward in the world and be, you know, independent, fully fledged uh, adult human beings in the world. Um, when we leave, it means that, that, that we must acknowledge we're we're losing our chance at ever getting what what we didn't what we didn't get what we didn't receive there and that it is now in our hands our adult hands to just take care of of the rest of it and that that isn't easy you'd be surprised <laughs> but uh yeah what a difficult undertaking this this actually is this is you know what a lot of uh the work of family constellations is dedicated to and um, I heard something recently, it was really quite, quite beautiful. In that way, we have to give up the possibility of having a mommy and come to have a relationship with having a mother. And I will leave the interpretations there. Um, but yeah, this story, um, like all enduring cultural myths, really does speak to deeper parts of ourselves. And if it has spoken to any part of you, then then just stay open. Watch your dreams. Yeah, yeah. See what arises for you. You are welcome to join me in a yoga nidra practice. That is the practice of yogic sleep where, um, yeah, we engage in the practice of consciously entering liminal space to let the urgings from our unconscious uh, rise, rise up and speak to us and, yeah, plant seeds from our own conscious mind into, into unconscious fertile soil. More on that on humhealing.com and more on all of my other offerings there. Thank you for listening and uh, yeah, big blessings to all of you on your own journeys.